Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, ready to take flight on a dragon dog named Falcor, is my best friend and co-host Aaron. I could, I could get behind that. I, I would definitely take flight on Falcor. With luck, you definitely could. <laughs> no, with luck, I would stay in flight with Falcor and not plummet to my. He didn't have any. He didn't have any harness or anything like that. It was no, absolutely yeah, ridiculous. <laughs> Well, this week we are going way back to 1984 and revisiting a childhood classic, The NeverEnding Story. And just like our main character needs companionship along his journey, so do we in this conversation. So returning to the show is our good friend Adam Rakoff. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me back. Uh, we're so glad to have you. a while. <laughs> it has been. I think the last episode you were on was The, the Karate Kid. And we, I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that might have been even prior to Cobra Kai blowing up in, in the way it did. So we almost could revisit that conversation as well. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, absolutely. I think we, we talked about the first two episodes because they released on YouTube Red. Right. That's right. Before Netflix did the smart thing and picked up the series. And Gosh, that was like three or four formats ago because we were doing <laughs> what we're up to or something back yeah. at that <laughs> When theaters were full of people and everything, it's exactly. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now they're about uh, to release season four, or I, I don't know exactly when, but soon. Yeah. Rumor has it it'll be around Christmas or around yeah. the same time as last year. So we're already getting our, our son prepared for New Year's Day or whenever it releases to kind of venture off in his own world for about five hours so we can enjoy <laughs> a little bit of yeah. Johnny and Dan gang. <laughs> Well, as I said, this is a this is a classic for all three of us, and uh, we're not going to mince words here. This is the uh, now we get into our spoilerific section of the show. We haven't talked about this, the movie at all except mentioning a, a great dragon dog named Falcor. But from here on out, if you have not seen the movie, I believe it's streaming in various places. Um, I'm sure you could find it somewhere on Blu-ray or whatever the latest format. I guess it's not on 4K. You mentioned Aaron that it's not in 4K just yet when you were uh, going through your viewing. No, I own the Blu-ray version of it, and I've always wondered, you know, I, I can understand why some movies don't get remastered. I mean, you always wonder, like, how much could be added to this from a 4K transfer upgrade, and because of the way it's made, it's really grainy and stuff, it probably wouldn't add a ton. You know, the Blu-ray looks okay, but this is not a movie that is gorgeous by any stretch of the imagination you know <laughs> in any format it's not gonna blow your mind like that yeah. i found so, it out that there's actually a 4k release in germany of the german cut oh. of the film and i actually ordered a copy from amazon in germany i have yet to receive it i think with customs it takes forever but i'm curious to see because they did do a uh, they did a 3k restoration from what i read in germany not sure why they didn't go all the way up to 4k but there you go. There, it's uh, it's available. It, whether it comes to the U.S., well, whether we're going to get that that version, I don't know. But um, yeah, apparently the German version is seven minutes longer and has different music. It doesn't have that opening theme song. So yeah, I, I've never seen this version. It'll be it, it'll be interesting to uh, compare and contrast when I eventually get that. Well, we definitely want to uh, hear your thoughts on that. That's <laughs> yes. yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Oh yes. I mean. I mean, when you got Kajagoogoo kind of opening us up with a little bit, I know it's not Kajagoogoo, but it's the front. 
doing a little theme song. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I, I'm just into it, you know, when the nothing yeah. is actually something, you know, it's just, it's so good anyway. So from here on out, we're spoiling it and give your yeah. chance, you know, give yourself 90 minutes of, of your life and, and give this movie a shot. It's, it's a lot of fun, uh, especially if you grew up in the eighties as we did. And with that, I want to open up with this question. Obviously all three of us, we are products of the eighties, probably one of the most famous revisited decades in maybe American history, at least. I don't can't speak for the rest of the world. But I wanted to ask each of you, what is your history with this film in particular? Well, it's kind of a special film for me because it, as far as I can remember, it's the very first film I saw in a theater with my father and brother in 1984. I was about six years old. I'm not sure if it came out after my birthday or not. Uh, I was born in May. I'm trying to remember. But uh, I have these vague flashes of seeing a few movies like in a drive-in theater when I was earlier, maybe E.T., Fox and the Hound, something like that. But but I really have a very vivid memory of this film sitting in this movie theater. It was an old Art Deco theater in my hometown, single screen, and just walking out as a six-year-old kid being like blown away by this experience having not really seen many other movies up until this point it was kind of a a uh an important film in uh in my childhood for that reason so i of course after that i watched it countless times on vhs <laughs> i remember going into our very first video store in my hometown seeing the, the you know the box on the shelf and i was like i, I need to buy this can i buy it and my mom asked the the guy and she's like, no, no, you, these aren't for sale. They're like a hundred dollars. <laughs> That's wow. when VHS tapes were were not really commercially available yet. You know, they were there was occasionally one or two like big movies that would be made available for commercial release for like twenty nine ninety five. But the average rental tape was a hundred dollars at the time. So I just wanted that box. I wanted to hold it in my hand so bad. I love the poster art with Falcor flying. You know, it, it's just uh, it has such a, a special place in my childhood because of the time and the age that I saw it. Yeah, I think yeah, it's probably like that for all of us because we're the same age and came up around <laughs> yeah. the same time. I, I don't remember anything about movies in the 80s and going to theaters. I don't know if I just didn't go to theaters until the 90s or if it was just, you know, far and few between and wasn't something that stuck out. But for me, it was, you know, this and The Princess Bride. And, and I will always and forever tie them together, not necessarily in quality, but in the way that they were movies of the same era that really, I think, created a love of fantasy for me. And that has gone on to, you know, turn into a massive Lord of the Rings fandom and, and such. And it, But it's these were the movies that did it. And I know some folks have other movies similar to these, like maybe Legend or The Dark Crystal. But for me, it was these two. And like you said, Adam, this is one where whether it was the VHS copy or not, I don't remember. But we probably had it. I think we had it recorded on a VHS tape or something because I, I do remember just watching it over and over and it's one of those movies that you just you know everything by heart it moves so fast that was one thing I noticed as an adult like it, it really does it is just bang 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 set piece set piece set piece and it is each thing is ingrained in your mind like each part of the quest each part of the each step and the fact that both of these movies, again, tying them together, this and The Princess Bride, they were both about 
reading. And they were both these little boys who were reading this book and going into this fantasy world. And they really, I think, in me, encouraged a love of reading at that point in my life that launched me out because it made me want to experience, not literally go into a fantasy world, but, you know, metaphorically understand that feeling that you get when you are so enraptured by it. And so, you know, it, it stuck with me and I absolutely adored it, watched it a million times, just over and over and over until I have no idea, but probably, I guess, late teens would have been maybe the last time I saw it until now. So I took a 20-ish, 25-year break between seeing it. So I, I hope you ask me another <laughs> question about that later, Patrick. <laughs> I probably will. I mean, it's it's definitely something that I think all three of us latch on to. And for different reasons. I, I love hearing your story, Adam, that this is the first the, theatrical experience for you. And I think all three of us had that. I mean, mine is Back to the Future. I remember distinctly doing that. And coincidentally, that's probably going to be the next time we have you on our show deliberately is for Back <laughs> to the Future. Because I don't think it's any secret that Adam, he, he likes Back to the Future a little bit. It's, yeah. it's all right. It's all right. Yeah, there's but, a handful of movies in the mid-80s. This one, Back to the Future, Karate Kid, which we've already yeah. visited, Ghostbusters, and probably The Goonies and Gremlins. They're all part of my – that's my childhood like uh, right there, that sums yeah. it up. <laughs> well, I mean, we've covered all. Back to the Future is the last one we have not covered on the show. So yeah, we've, we've we'll done plus. Ghostbusters. I did that with uh, with Jeremy. Jeremy and I did oh. Ghostbusters. I can't believe then, we haven't done Back to the Future. That is wild. Well, I think we. we, well, we I would I, be honored to 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 join you. Uh, for oh, that you can discussion. you can lock it in. That's totally fine <laughs> yeah. with me, especially if you I, like the second two movies, because I. <laughs> Yeah, I, I am a fan of all of them. My the first is by far my favorite, but I I do and I do really love all three of them. So yeah, happy it's, to. It's definitely a favorite of mine as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll lock that. We'll tentatively lock that in a soft a soft penciling out of there. But yeah, for me, I was part of the Bauhaus generation. I would go to the video store and um, I never knew how to bootleg anything at the time. We didn't have a VCR that had two of the slots. It was always just go to the video store, rent it take it back, go to the video store, rent it, take it back. And this was one of those that I think at some point the video store people were like, we should just give this kid a copy of this because, you know, he's the only one out of anybody that's, that's checking this out. I don't know. I, I'd like to believe that I was the only one doing that, but I never didn't find it. So anytime I'd go in to rent it, it was always there. So my thought was always, oh, they're holding it for me because they know that they're always going to get a rental out of me. And And watching it as... And at an early age, you know, five, six, seven years old, I'm, I'm watching this and I'm going, this is just amazing. The story itself, it's so fantastical. And I have gotten, I won't call it jaded, but I've gotten less inclined to be an epic fantasy person. This is a, a movie that I think does something for me, including nostalgia, that allows me to latch on to that fantasy in a way that I can appreciate the weirdness of it. I can appreciate just the kind of outlandishness, the, Hey, I want to create this story about this mythical world and have these mythical creatures and they talk really strange. And you have all of this kind of world building that you never get to see because we're getting dropped right into the chaos of what's going on. And obviously anytime I see something like that, I think we should make a TV series out of this. I've, I've actually had a thought after watching this, like, what would this look like in 2021 as a remake, you know, to take the original author's vision and, and try to make the book, you know, try to really adapt the book that it's, that it, that it comes from, because I know that the author 
wasn't real high on the first one. I think he passed away before the second and third came out, which I never saw. And based off of the reviews, I don't want to. As much as I love Jonathan Brandis, I love him. <laughs> I, I just can't bring myself to do that. But I remember just always wanting to kind of go into this world with Bastion. And it's very quiet. It's not this bombastic kind of thing. I mean, there are there are definitely set pieces and this epicness to it, but it feels like a child writing the story. It doesn't feel like George Lucas creating this amazing world of you know galaxies far, far away. It really does feel like it's from the mind of a child. And I, I think that is the beauty of the film, is that it captures what children want to feel. I was actually exploring the idea of watching this with my eight-year-old but he's got challenges with tornadoes and so obviously when you see the nothing doing its thing plus i didn't know with gamork if he was going to be a little too gamork crazy. is terrifying gamork yeah, he, is he still can't. terrifying i'm 42 <laughs> yeah but i but i know that he ended up not watching it with me but i think at some point i really do want to introduce it to him because i love it and i would love to see what you know nine ten year old now living in a world of digitization and swiping and all this stuff, what they would think of a movie like this, how they would respond to it. The adult in me is, is definitely curious, but I know that watching it, I smiled uh, most of the way through. I remember, oh my gosh, I remember having a huge crush on the Empress. And there, there are just so many kind of dramatic moments that could be translated as melodramatic for sure. But they were, again, from a kid's point of view, they're dramatic. Everything is serious. And uh, it would be easy to pick this thing apart. And, you know, there are definitely technical things about this movie that you could say is, quote, don't hold up. Um, the, the practical effects, I think, are definitely very much 80s, very much like the Muppets that you would see in things like The Dark Crystal. So the puppetry is OK. The dialogue is well, OK, you know, whatever. But at the same time you take it holistically and knowing that nostalgia is attached to it, there's still value. And so, you know, when you guys look at that, the things that do hold up or don't hold up, how does that affect your experience of it just as an adult, as a whole, uh, you know, good, bad, indifferent watching it as an adult, what kinds of things stood out to you this time? Uh, or what, what things really resonated with you? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of practical effects in general. I, I think it's there's such a lost art form of being able to build sets, build models, build miniatures, you know, um, do makeup effects on actors and, or do puppets or do animatronics and having to figure all that out before you even roll camera and then getting and capturing those those elements in camera. I think that that's sort of a lost art form. Uh, there have been a few filmmakers who have, sort of experimented in, in doing, you know, a, sort of a hybrid approach with some CGI in, in recent years. But overall, I think it's something that it was a necessity of the day. They didn't have really any alternative. So this, they went, there was no CGI or very little at the time. You had a few movies like The Last Starfighter that were, were starting to dabble in, in this, in sort of CGI uh, effects work. But for the most part, this was a German film. Uh, I believe it was all shot on sound stages in Munich, except for a few exteriors that were shot in Vancouver, uh, like the school and the street scenes in the opening and the, and the end of the film. But yeah, I mean, for me, just seeing the, the artistry 
on camera, as even if it doesn't sort of hold up to today's standard, there's still something very tactile about that for me. And it, and, it, and again, it could be nostalgia. It just feels special. And especially the um, sort of atmospheric effects that they shot using a cloud tank, which is something that Spielberg used a lot in some of his earlier films like Close Encounters and, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. They would essentially pour two pour water into a giant tank there would be fresh water and then salt water and then they would pour um oil paints into it and sort of let the oils kind of just make these strange surreal formations and they would film it and i just think that's such a creative approach to something that today you would obviously do in a computer so I, I yeah that and the not, all the shots the nothing are, are shot in a cloud tank of course the opening title sequence uh, is a is is a cloud tank, and uh, I just I'm a, I'm a big fan of sort of the visual look and feel of this film, and and yeah, some things don't hold up, like you said. Uh, one thing that really stood out to me this time is Falcor's voice does not sound like it's coming from his mouth at all, like the movement everybody. of his mouth. Everybody, <laughs> yeah. all the puppets. Yeah, they just don't feel like they're synced very well. I don't know if that's a combination of the fact that it was you know, a largely German crew working on this. I don't know if it was an, if it was an English issue or if it was just a mechanical issue where they couldn't get the mouths to move in sync with the dialogue. But yeah, I didn't really notice it as a kid. I just kind of, set, I, I let my uh, suspension of disbelief, you know, um, allow me to, to just enjoy what I was seeing on screen and, 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 a, and just pretend it was real, right? Pretend these are real, real creatures and puppets that are talking. But noticing it, paying more close attention this time, I, I definitely felt like that's the one thing that um, didn't quite work as well as my my memory. <laughs> yeah, that did. I noticed it this time around, and I had never before. But it didn't actually bother me too much. And I guess that's probably because I spent a lot of time at Chuck E. Cheese, and so I felt <laughs> like, well, this is normal for these animatronic type you know, characters, they're not supposed to be perfectly, you know, see, they're not CGI. And I think, I think that's the kicker is when you acknowledge up front that you're watching something that is not CGI and it's not going to be that flashy, there is a charm, what you were saying, Patrick, about like just the old school nature of the way that it is constructed and the simplicity of it. Because when I was going through Letterboxd reviews after rewatching it, I was seeing you know, friends who had just watched it for the first time in their 30s and 40s, and they were, you know, like, oh, this is awful. This is terrible. And I was seeing adults who were like, no, this doesn't hold up. Man, why did I ever like this? I think to your point about how it really is, you're in the story as a kid. Like, it feels there the lack of backstory, the lack of world building, as you put it, it feels like that's how you would truly make up this thing if you were a child your brain would think up one cool thing like a big turtle and you'd imagine what happened with the big turtle and then there'd be a flash and you'd be like oh but it'd be cool if there was like a, a flying dog and like you just cut to that scene and that's what this movie feels like and so yes from a cinematic perspective it's tough to translate that and make it feel like a normal movie would it doesn't flow quite as you know i don't know there's a there's a there's a very much a drasticness like a, like a big 
cut to the editing in my opinion it was it's just abrupt. like it's definitely yeah that's why i said set pieces it feels like we're like boom we're in this spot and then somebody snaps their fingers and we're like now we're in the next spot and there's no real connective tissue for the most part between them but it that's intentional i think and and i can respect that more than i would want to see it done now and i think that's where i land with this movie and and as you saw patrick yes i still give it five stars but I give it five stars based on that nostalgic view of it as a kid because I don't think right now watching it today it would be a five-star movie if it was released. I think we have the ability to tell stories in different ways, and I think it could have been tighter and it could have been better. But I think at the time, there's a reason – there's a Facebook post in our Facebook group recently. People were talking about cult classics, and – we someone made a post about what is the opposite of a cult classic what about those movies that people loved like avatar or sometimes it's cultural like gone with the wind like the nothing is ever going to touch gone with the wind as far as box office success if you account for inflation it literally will never be matched probably but people don't like it now because there's a new perception or new cultural view of it but things like avatar people want to talk about all the time how they hate avatar do you, I mean, if you all hated Avatar, well, then how did it become the highest grossing film of all time, you know, at its height? So this movie is similar to that, where everybody you ever would talk to would tell you, oh, my God, I love the never ending story as a kid. But then if you watched it as an adult, you'd be like, oh, I don't know why I liked that. And I think what matters is that we loved it as a kid. And that speaks to it being a unique and perfectly told story that captured the imagination of children, and appealed to us at that age, at that time. And that's why you can't compare things all the time from different eras. It's very tough. I, I talk about this all the time when I'm arguing with friends about sports, whether it's M MJ or LeBron. You know, it's very, very difficult to compare eras because they're not competing on the same equal playing field. And so... You can say Never Ending Story was one of the absolute best children's movies of the 80s without trashing it and saying it's a crappy movie today because it doesn't matter. It doesn't it doesn't need to compete with Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think we can love both for what they are. Um and and it and it's yeah, I mean it doesn't have the staying power I don't think because I showed it to my kids growing up and they've got a different experience. You know, they different history with movies like they've they've been exposed to things that are so much crisper, so much more interesting, so much more vibrant that it's tough for them to see it and connect with it. But we hadn't none of us had at our age. And so for us, yeah. it was special and it will always be special in our hearts and our mm -hmm. memories. There is a standard that every generation has that is developed either in response to the generation before it or as a result of the generation before it. In other words, there's a, you could call it a growth. You could call it a, an advancement and, and those could be valid at the same time. I would just call it just a different standard. And my child will always want to push the fast forward button on the TV that we never had a fast forward button on. He doesn't get these whole commercials. He thinks they're annoying. I think they're annoying, but he doesn't realize, obviously, if you were growing up like me, you had to lift. I mean, now I'm the crotchety old man living on the, you know, sitting on the porch saying, get off my lawn, right? But 
the same thing applies to these films is you watch the never ending story. And I don't think there's anything wrong. I think it's completely invalid to say that nostalgia shouldn't uh, put your valuation of a film higher or lower. It's totally fine. That's why art is very subjective and why it should be. It's because there's something that we connect with when it comes to a movie. And when you look like look at something like The NeverEnding Story, you find hints of what came after it that I believe were inspired by it. Take Aaron, favorite movie of all time. Well, besides, besides Lord of the Rings, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Princess Bride. The yeah. Princess Bride. The couple, you know, Billy Crystal and his wife. My wife, when we're watching this, she's like, "Is that that's Billy Crystal, right?" Dude, no, they're so not. similar. They're so similar. They're both medicine men, though. Exactly. They're both men of science, and they both have annoying wives that are actually kind of smart. But one is an elf and one is not. Yes, now we're splitting hairs. But (laughs) the point being that three three years later, we get the Princess Bride, which I believe is a refinement of those kinds of characters. Do those characters exist elsewhere? They probably do. You've got smart scientific man and his seemingly annoying wife that actually has a little bit of, of an edge on him and it makes it fun right you have epic fantasy characters that exist and i'm not saying that the never-ending story was a playbook for all epic fantasy but when i was watching this aaron i was thinking this reminds me of how i watch superman now in relationship to man of steel in relationship to bvs in relationship to justice league i have a huge 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 appreciation for christopher reeve and superman and that those first two films for sure, and a Superman 3 on a more slapstick kind of level. But Christopher Reeve is not my Superman. Henry Cavill is my Superman. And I have no problem living with both of those decisions by saying I absolutely love Superman, but I recognize it for what it is and what it was, a movie that came out in the late 70s that, just like The NeverEnding Story, had to use what it had to tell its story. It's the same thing with Seven Samurai. Absolutely respect it. We'll not watch it again. Way too long and too many subtitles for even me. I, I, I can appreciate subtitles to an extent, but give me anime over Seven Samurai. But when you watch Mag 7, either the original or the remake, you see how that works. You see how movies influence their future counterparts. And why I think it's really important to have those conversations by saying, look, if you like this movie, you should go back and watch this to appreciate where it came from. But I think there should be an appendix to that or an addendum that says and it's okay not to like the original it's okay because movies were made for the time in which they existed and i think if you have this creative team now the appreciation that they have for the source material as much as they could execute it would still exist today because you have book to movie adaptations where i believe the best book to movie adaptations are done by directors and writers that appreciate the source material and are not out to make a buck. And when you get into the the young adult boom that happened several years ago, there was such a saturation after Hunger Games that I really didn't want to see anything else because it was really just on the surface feeling like regurgitated nonsense. And I was like, okay, I'm done. I got my Katniss, got my three fingers, I'm good. It's diminishing returns for sure. It is, yeah, absolutely. And it just scales down. But Adam, I think you mentioned The Last Starfighter. I will always go back to that as for the same reasons that I go back to the never ending story, because it's that very simple tale of wonder only it's instead of in an epic fantasy realm, 
it's now in outer space. And what is it based off of? A freaking video game. I mean, who yeah, Adam it? might have a Last Starfighter yeah. arcade there yeah, in the back. That might <laughs> be what that is. <laughs> if not, we encourage you to get it so that way you can yeah. you know, just really connect. But in the same way that you have a kid connecting to something bigger inside a video game that we would all relate to as as quarter pumping kids, some of us grew up loving Old Yeller and Rin Tin Tin and Ten Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, which is why I love that opening sequence or that that scene at the bookstore where that bookseller was like, huh, "You you know you the arcade's down the street," and he's like, "Dude, I'm a book man, okay." I've got 187 of them. Yeah, comic books. <laughs> the crotchety old man, I love it. And then you have Bastian just basically kind of bowing up to him and say, no, there are kids out there that actually love to read. And that's what really sets the stage for this movie is you have an entryway into a world that you wouldn't have otherwise. The Last Starfighter does it. And then we get a glimpse and live vicariously through these main characters. What I think the, what I think the NeverEnding Story does so well is that it doesn't leave you in Fantasia and it doesn't leave you in the real world because that's not the point. The point is to connect you with these two characters, with Atreyu and Bastion. And those abrupt edits that you talked about, Aaron, that's when they work really well. Because when you read a book and you're immersed in it and you hear a, a bell ring that signals the end of school or something, you're taken out of it for a minute. And you're like, whoa, whoa, get back back here. That's what fascinated me the most about watching this as a kid was that could this really happen? Could I open up any kind of book? Is there a book out there that has some weird thing on the cover or not that when I open it up, I become part of the story? And it's the closest thing that you get to those choose your own adventure books. And I remember loving those because I was like, I'm the captain of my fate at this point. <laughs> so watching this movie, I think it was one of the first entries for me just as a movie lover into being fully immersed. In no other movie have I felt like I am Rocky or I am Kal-El. I'm living vicariously, but this movie invites you, this story invites you to be able to take part, to be a part of that decision-making, and then ultimately to be the one who resets or is able to rescue this world that you didn't know existed and that you didn't know would be a part of your life. And and I think that's what made me sad watching the ending of it because it was like, what happens next? And then it, that's when we find out about this is really the first half of a book. And it's got me really wanting to read the book, either in paperback or in digital or even listening to an audiobook if it's available, because I want to know more. And that was something as an adult that I pulled out from being a kid. You know, for me, watching this movie as a kid, complete story. It was the finally ending story like it ended for me but as an adult realizing that it is based off of a book I want to read it I want to see you know what was missing what didn't take place or, or what did we not get to see I want to be basket right I want to be the kid that gets immersed and there's a part of me guys that wants to kind of play with what if I actually get a chance to be a part of the story I mean I'm not yeah but there's a small part of me that has that little childlike wonder and going, maybe I do. And so was there anything watching this as an adult specifically that resonated with you maybe more on a, you know, from an adult standpoint than, than as a kid or was everything like nostalgia, nostalgia? Yeah. A lot of it, what a lot of it was nostalgia for me, but as you 
mentioned the book. I actually purchased the book uh, not too long ago in the with the full intention of reading it in its entirety prior to <laughs> to this recording. I did not finish the book, but uh, I learned a lot about the book. I read some reviews of the book and found some really fascinating things that that did change. And for one thing, it's called Fantastica, not Fantasia, which is interesting. Little things like that. That's fine. But the thing that they only allude to Gamork, that kind of wolf-like creature who is like the servant of the nothing, apparently he's actually being um, he's actually serving a, a different antagonist that's behind the nothing. They're called the manipulators, and they are actually a group of being a group of beings that are trying to control the human race through. Uh, sort of destroying all of its hopes and, and dreams. So there's just there's it goes a little deeper, a little darker, I think, than than the film actually chose to do. And of course, the very end of the movie, where you see uh, Bastion come back to Earth, right on Falcor to put the bullies in the dumpster. Apparently, that was one of the things that uh, Michael Ende, uh, the author of the book, just hated because that doesn't happen. He never comes back to uh falcor could never come into the earth realm uh, in his envisioning of the book it's only you know the boy can go into the book but not not the other way but yeah apparently there's a lot more of him trying to be convinced that he's really that he has a, a purpose that that bastion is the the one that can can save Fantasia. Like he has to keep rereading the story over and over again before he's finally comes to the realization that no, this is that, that you Bastion, you can, you can do this you can save Fantasia that you have the power. It, it, it goes along, it goes on much longer. And apparently, as you mentioned, the second half when he's making all his wishes in that whole section, they kind of loosely, adapted that in the second movie which is not in any way worth watching <laughs> i did try to show that you mentioned showing this to your your eight-year-old i have an eight-year-old daughter and i did show her this movie la earlier this year but we skipped over quite a few scenes uh in particular the 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 dying of artax the horse that's just a, a brutal scene and even today as you said sort of look how does it affect me differently that's still his heart is just a heart wrenching scene to watch, even knowing that the horse it was OK, you know, that it's not a real horse and not a real drowning horse. Uh, and apparently the, something I read was they had to they built these hydraulic lifts that lowered the horse under the mud and they had to train these horses for three months so that it wouldn't freak out and realize it's going to it's going to drown. They had to basically teach it that, no, it's going to come back up. So they could finally get the shot on camera where the mud is like right up to its, its face. So it's just amazing what lengths they went to in this movie, which I think was scheduled to be a three month shoot. And it took almost a year to complete. So and it was the most expensive movie ever filmed in Germany at the time. So a lot again, just just doing some additional research. It's just it makes you appreciate these types of movies even more, I think, than what you just saw on the surface level as a kid, because you realize now that so many people, artists and technicians and musicians and people contributed and collaborated to kind of bring this movie to you. And, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, it's a 90 minute movie. It's actually a lot happens in this 90 minute. That's a short movie for a fantasy film. Typically, 
you talk about Lord of the Rings, you're looking at three, four hour movies usually in this in this genre. But this is a very tight movie. And it's it's interesting because, as I mentioned earlier, there's a longer version that was released in Germany. And apparently uh, Wolfgang Peterson, the director, was uh, friendly with Steven Spielberg at the time because Steven Spielberg loved his his film uh, Das Boot, the German uh a U-boat film that he made in, I think, 1981. And so they became friendly and started talking. And apparently Spielberg helped him edit the movie for North American audiences. He gave him lots of tips and advice. And uh, as a thank you, uh, Wolfgang Peterson gave Spielberg the prop of the Orin, you know, the snake symbol. So Spielberg has that in, in his home to this day. And uh, all those little things, I think, are sort of cool little stories behind the story. You know, we're talking about a a movie based on a book, but there's also the story of the making of the of the story and and how that happened. I, I just find it all fascinating. Oh yeah, me too. I that stuff. I'm glad you're here to tell us all that stuff because I <laughs> I eat up special features on my physical media. It's the main reason I even buy physical yeah. media anymore. Is like I just, give me all the commentaries, right? All the commentary tracks for everything. Yep. I love that. I will say, Patrick, to answer one of your things though is as an adult the kid in me comes out when watching it. There's, there's two parts of me that come out. I think I watch it through both sets of eyes at the same time. I, I couldn't watch it purely nostalgic and I couldn't watch it purely as an adult. I was frequently finding myself torn between during each and every scene. So I simultaneously was giddy thinking about the idea of going into this book and how, like, I've been doing another deep dive into the Middle Earth series right now, and I'm just, like, I mean, I've, I've always been a fan of it. It's my favorite world, and I'm just in the midst of it again. And I was like, man, if I could go on a journey with the Hobbits, sign me up, right? Like, I would, in a heartbeat, I would love to experience something so immersive as what the idea and the concept in the movie give us. And then I would, on the flip side, my brain would shift to adult mode, and I would be like, why is... Uh, Carl Conrad Coriander sitting here reading this book. Like, is he in the story? Is he part of the book? What, what, like, is he in Fantasia? Like, what, what is he reading it for? What's the point? And then, like, is he, did he know Bastion was going to come in? There's this weird little back and forth, and then he pretty much just gives up and kind of makes it so that he can easily take the book. There's all these little, like, adult details that I'm just like, what the heck's going on? Artax's death. You mentioned that, Adam. Obviously, still crushing, always going to be. And then my adult brain flips on, and I'm like, wait a second. Like, I've known this horse for, I, I kid you not, 60 seconds. Like, I, I mean, I have literally have zero background in history and attachment to this horse. But I care in that moment about the horse. But, like, nothing before that. It's not like I've gone on an adventure with Artas for, you know, an, an hour, and then all of a sudden now he's dying, and I'm like, no, my beloved horse. It's It's all manufactured. As they would call it today, people would say, oh, it's manipulative, right? I think all movies are manipulative. That's what they're supposed to be. Whatever. That's a whole other argument. But, like, my brain would constantly go back and forth. Why? Oh, he's going on a quest. Cool. They bequeath him from the city. They're like, go do this thing. Why can't he take weapons with him? Like, what? what is the – there's literally no explanation for why you couldn't take weapons to go find the cure for the freaking Empress that you're in a hurry to find. Like – that makes no sense to me. And so I just, I would always go back and forth, right? The whole movie. I ultimately also kind of came out of this remembering that back in the day, dude, I must have just glossed over the first 
three minutes of the movie with Major Dad because I did not remember anything about his mom dying and this book. This whole thing is about like dealing with grief and depression, and I never connected the dots on that when I was eight, seven, eight, six years old. You know what I mean? And so I wonder if this movie was made today. I don't think that I don't believe that culture could treat it so subtly. Like the kid would be on drugs, literally on like some sort of antidepressants or be in his therapy session. And Mr. Coriander would be like, you know, a shrink and or something like give, putting him into some sort of, uh, you know, like mind. I don't know, psychosis or something to go into this world. Like it would be totally different because of the way we view how to handle depression. But it wouldn't be. Oh, go read a book and be by yourself and hide away and deal with bullying and your mom's death by pretending that you're somewhere else. That's not the way the world would want to treat it, I don't think. And so there's something really both interesting about watching it play out again, but kind of fascinating when you think about the difference of how far just the the general way in which society as a whole thinks about things has changed in you know, 25 to 30 years. Great stuff, guys. I agree with all that. <laughs> and I had a little help from Looper, the website, when I was just sort of doing a little bit of post-movie just research, like, you know, what does this movie mean? How does it hold up? How do other people view it? And I ran across a really fantastic article that you know, these are always going to be clickbait articles. And they says, so-and-so ending explained. I'm like, what's so amazing about the ending? I mean, he had other adventures, big deal. But the article itself goes into a lot of what I started picking up this viewing as an adult is just the the deeper themes of the movie not only just dealing with the loss you know with grief obviously our text is going to be probably the moment that we that that most people remember because it's like what you've just seen this horse for 60 seconds and now he's dying but Aaron like you said I'm going this time around I'm watching the movie and they get to the point where they tell him you can't take any weapons with you only what you have and you know, you've got your horse companion and then you must find a cure for the emperor. And I'm thinking, where does he start? <laughs> I mean, there's no direction, at least on a quest, at least with, you know, with the Bagginses, you've got this ring and you have to get it to, to Mordor, right? That's, that's at least something. And let's have adventures along the way. I'm watching this and I'm like, is the cure for the emperor under that rock that he just passed? Is it in that tree? And of course, as we move along the story, we, we find out for some reason or another, Atreyu has knowledge of the land. Like he mentions when he's talking to the, the sinus infected turtle. I can't remember. Uh, Morla. Thank you. Yeah. Morla. Yeah. The ancient one. <laughs> yeah. That he's been to all these places and he's getting clues. And as I was watching it, it, it did bother me. The adult in me is like, I need some gaps to be filled in here. I mean, the reasons why this happens. But at the same time, it goes back to what we talked about with regard to, and you said it beautifully, when a kid's writing a story, he's creating this hero's quest with as many limitations, as many things to overcome as possible. And yes, I wonder why, Petra, <laughs> you can't take any weapon. But I'm also thinking, would that even help him along the way with what we saw? Probably not. I mean, he wasn't trying to, you know, someone hunting purple buffalo before he came here. But I think all that speaks to the fact that as kids, when you write stories or when you're putting these things down, you don't think about those details. You're thinking about getting your hero from beginning to middle to end and having 
some kind of conflict. I mean, we don't see Atreyu mourning the fact that he can't see his tribe again. I mean, that's not a fact. We see his companionship with his horse. And I think that's accentuated with Bastion in that moment where we see Atreyu laying on the, on the ground, he's sleeping, and an Artax muzzled him, and he's like, oh, it's time to eat. Good idea. And then you hear Bastion go, no, it's a great idea. And at that point, I feel like that's when reader and character really start to, to form this bond. This is where I feel connected when I, when I read a book immerse, immersely like Jurassic Park. I feel like I'm in the, in the rain and I'm running and, and trying to get away from, from dinosaurs. But what I, what I see from this is, and that, that Looper article was really helpful in sort of articulating some of my thoughts that we're talking about grief and hopelessness and the ability to, to use your imagination and how that gets lost as an adult. I mean, Moore is a great example of the adult that's cynical. That doesn't matter is all this turtle says. Not that it matters, but yes, I have the cure or I know where you can find this. Not that it matters. Even the way that the dialogue happens, even the way it's presented, you have this long kind of tired, I don't care, you're annoying me. And it ends with 10,000 miles away. And I'm like, oh gosh, I mean, it just sounds helpless, right? And then we get into the the set pieces where we start feeling that grief, the swamps of sadness, the, um, you know, the, the mud and just walking through and the, the score. And then we see Gmork start making his way, going to attack. And it's that moment. Then we see Falcor, you know, the hero, not the hero of the story, but the companion that is needed, that, that guardian angel, if you want to go that route or that, that companion that is desperately needed to provide hope and healing literally and metaphorically for for Atreyu. There's a reason why he is white, this pureness of who he is, and contrasted against the the dank gray and brown and black of the of the swamps. It's it's really cool. That's one of those practical digital effects that I would love to see redone in a way that captures that that moment. Because I feel like it was lost where all we see is just his his foot and yeah. grabbing grabbing a, a Treyu and then rescuing. But the but the point still remains that Atreyu needed rescuing not only from the swamp and from the danger, but from his grief. And I, when you see that in context, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot in terms of what the film is trying to do. And again, it really makes me want to pick the book up and see what was the bigger picture? What was really the big idea? And I think we're hinting on that with a lot of these, these moments. Uh, the idea of the um, you know getting to the Southern Oracle, and we have the first of the two gates. Where <laughs> I told my wife, I said, "Look, as a kid, the one thing that I remember from this first Oracle was was boobies. I mean, <laughs> that was what I was like. These statues are naked, and and they have laser eyes. <laughs> and so, but this time around, I'm watching this, and I'm like, okay, what's really happening here? Oh, there's a level of humility that you have to have, confident humility." not fake, not being arrogant enough to think that I'm humble, because when you say I'm humble, you're not. I mean, it's, there's, it's completely the opposite. And then 
that's another, again, another set piece that I would love to see kind of explored and expanded on because I think those are important moments. The ability, you know, getting to that second gate with the with the snow and seeing his reflection. I mean, all these things I think are really, really wonderful hints of if we saw this redone with that same kind of care, I would love to see that visualized in a way that captured the the weight of what was happening. But I think for kids, for I think as as a kid watching this in 1984, it was enough for me. I think, Aaron, as you said, we'd probably go way too far to the right <laughs> in turn, or way too far the other way, and it would be so heavy that we would lose the magic of it. And that's what I think is the key point here, the magic of storytelling, the ability to dive into a story, to become part of the part of the story, and the ability to also keep your feet on the ground. That was also hinted at. You know, his dad's like, you got to keep your feet on the ground. And that was a conflict to him. I have to keep my feet on the ground. And ultimately, I think I'd like to think the book kind of balances that out <laughs> because I don't think it can be one or the other. And that's where I think, you know, Peterson, where he leaves off the end of the film. I mean, what we end up with at the end of the movie, guys, is the last the last image we see is Bastian gets his revenge. And as a kid, we love that. You know, we love seeing the the bullies getting thrown into the garbage. But there's more. And as an adult, I wanted to kind of explore everything leading up to that point, which is probably why, like, is Indus, is that his name? Indy? Indy? Indy, yeah. Indy, yeah. Yeah. I, I would probably have issues with that because there is more to that story. But again, at the same time, you're trying to capture an audience that may not get all that. And I think that as maybe a teenager, uh, young adult, you know, you know, the 13 to 17 crowd, I think a movie being sort of reimagined based off of the, the source material would be pretty fantastic. Yeah, it would probably have to be in this age of streaming a miniseries. Yes. A hot, big budget, you know, HBO, something like that. I mean, in order to capture everything that this book has uh, going going on, it just feels like they clearly had a 90 minute runtime they were aiming for, and they knew they had to cram it all in. <laughs> and yeah, they they just chose to lop off the second half. And but I think they did leave it open, right? It, essentially, it has a cliffhanger ending. It says that Bastion had many more adventures, and you know, and but that's another story. You know, that to me was such a great ending as a kid because you're like, oh, th- this really is a never ending story because. We don't even get to see what happens next, and maybe we, we never will as an audience. Uh, but yeah, that to me that was a great a- example of how the book became a movie, and the movie could be could spawn another movie or another miniseries or us talking about the movie, talking about the book. You know, we are now all part of the never-ending story. The people listening to this podcast are now part of the never-ending story. Well Ooh, said. Adam. That's well really said. deep. That's really great. <laughs> well, before we finish up, I want to ask, just practically speaking, were there any moments that uh, you consider your favorite then or now? And I'm I'm saying this because Adam and I have already talked about this. He he challenged me to <laughs> there's a I guess what you call a fist bump moment or a hand clap moment that you told me is in the film, and you asked me to see if I could recognize it. I confess I could not find it because I had my own. And so I'm going to let this be an opportunity for, at the very least, Adam, you to reveal what that moment was, among others that you like. Sure, yeah. Well, there's in particular 
too, but um, as a kid and every subsequent viewing on VHS, every time that the Rockbiter rides up to the ivory tower and says, I never knew it was that beautiful. And then you see the shot of the ivory tower and the, the, the Giorgio Moroder score plays. I would just get chills and goosebumps every time. And same with the end of the movie when he holds up the Orin and says, maybe the Orin can guide us. And the same thing, the, the sort of rock moves out of the way and you see uh, the ivory tower again and the music kind of swells. Those two moments, I get chills just now thinking about it. It just was such a magical moment for me as a kid. And again, I don't know if a kid today would be getting chills after watching this movie. But for me, it just it takes me back to how I felt as a young kid. And uh, and also, I think there's two other parts of this movie that, of course, when when Bastion is on, you know, Falcor. Well, first he says, my first wish is and he and he goes yeah and then the music swells same thing you know he's flying on falcor that's another just amazing moment for any kid i think because yeah that's what any kid watching this movie or pretending they're reading this book they're like i want to ride falcor (laughs) i want to be on that luck dragon but the other scene that as you mentioned it is the first gate to the southern oracle the two sphinxes that was just such a incredibly suspenseful scene for me as a kid this idea that you had to walk up to these two menacing um rock statues and that the eyes would slowly start to open and only somebody who was like pure of heart could make it past there's just something really uh intense and again I, sometimes i look at movies like this and think how how are these kids movies <laughs> i think about the kids movies of today and i just think they're not nearly as dark or or scary as they were back then. And I, I don't know if that's a, I'm not saying it's a bad thing because obviously I was six years old when I first saw this and it didn't scar me or anything. I, I don't think there was anything that horrible in it, but it just, it amazes me sometimes when I look back at these PG kids movies of the mid eighties and compare them to, you know, similar films of say the mid nineties or the early two thousands. And there's really a big difference between the, you know, the, the violence, the cursing and a lot of the other thematic elements that just are a lot, a lot darker and more adult than, than you would expect. And I think that just comes down to the filmmakers in particular, like the sort of Spielberg generation, they really, I think they realized that kids weren't dumb and that they were much smarter and more mature than than maybe their parents thought they were, and they could take it, they could handle it, and that they actually wanted to be challenged as viewers and and to have these characters talk like their friends talked on the schoolyard, not be perfect little people, right? So anyway, I just think there's a lot there's a lot of great scenes in this movie. Uh, but those are probably, for me, the ones that will always uh, – I, and, and you know what? One other thing, the opening title sequence with the cloud tank and the, the never-ending story theme song by Lamal. I mean, that, that alone, I'll just I, – I, I, I could listen to that song anytime. <laughs> Only it's, without the music video, right? Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> it's such an earworm, m- yeah. like, chorus. Um, it, it's interesting you mentioned that about – believing and trusting in kids. And I think there's something to be said in a much deeper analysis of this that we don't have to get into right now because I'd have to think on it really, but to be said about the idea of the reason 
a lot of the reason that would be is also because of access. So we, growing up in the 80s, we aren't, Netflix doesn't exist, and HBO Max doesn't exist, and YouTube doesn't exist, and TikTok doesn't exist. Like, we haven't, we're not completely overwhelmed with options, and we haven't seen thousands of different pieces of media from the time we were two years old in our day, right? Like, this is one of three, four, five big movies that maybe we got to see as kids. So there is something a little different, I think, that plays into this of how much we are saturated and and also just how much different the world is. Because I think there are definitely kids' movies today, a lot of them that do probably have kids that act like they act today, but they act very differently <laughs> than they acted in the 80s. Um, and it would just be it would be interesting to explore like psychologically how the difference is when it comes to how much access we have to movies and, and con media content and how it affects our views on what we do watch now versus for those of us that grew up and didn't have that. My favorite, favorite moment is very much my favorite set piece. My favorite part of the quest is what Adam, same thing you talked about. Like I, I love the Sphinxes. I love the, the multiple gates going through that section and just visually speaking, I think it's the coolest to watch the night come up and get zapped by these cross lasers and then to go through multiple levels of having to prove yourself worthy. I just really enjoy that section of it. It appeals to the high fantasy lover in me. But on a broader scale, I think that scene is part of the one of the things I noticed as an adult of how to the point this movie is with its dialogue and it's funny because there's so much like just kind of cringy kind of almost annoying dialogue like I, I was reading an article about all the reasons the adults shouldn't watch this movie and one of them is like a joke about how everything our Atreyu says is screaming like why is why does he do nothing but scream and it was a bunch of screenshots in a row of Atreyu screaming and it's so accurate like the kid just screams everything but Mixed within that, you have all of these like incredibly insightful pieces of dialogue and observations about the feeling of grief. You have from when Atreyu is with Artax's death, he says, you have to try. You have to care. And that we move forward with that theme of like you having to care and having to try. And then the turtle says, we don't even care. And we don't care that we don't care. It's like complete indifference. And so, and then the theme moves forward to the, the Oracle, right? And they talk about, you must feel your own worth. And, and they get to, they're talking about the mirror. And I love this part because Ingi Wook says, kind people find out that they are cruel. Brave men find out that they are really cowards. Confronted by their true selves, most men run away screaming. Like th this is, like you said, Adam, this is, heavy stuff like if you really sit down and think about it and are able to unpack it but it's mixed in there in this broader kind of fantastical story that you don't necessarily catch it all as a kid and then even at the end we get gamork one of gamork's lines is people who have no hope are easy to control and whoever has the control has the power like it is blunt and very accurate <laughs> and then the empress talking about Bastion, she says he simply doesn't believe that one boy could be that important. And that one was a, was a big deal to me, too, because of just the idea of this is a kid who gets bullied. 
he doesn't feel important. He he feels he's lost right now. His mom died. His dad doesn't really know how to handle it and his depression over it. And he's off at work. He's getting attacked and bullied by these kids. He doesn't feel that he's important, but this story is making him feel that over the course of it because he's seeing himself as a Treyu. So it's just the movie has so much like real depth to it mixed in there, along with the kind of jokey, weird dialogue times that I, I that really stuck out to me. And then one other like fun thing that I just love about the movie is primarily the first scene where Bastion takes a break. And again, I love, love, love both this and The Princess Bride and how we do this. And we kind of cut back and forth between reading the book and in the world and then real life and, you know, close it, Grandpa, you know, with Fred Savage. But in this one, he starts to eat his lunch, his school lunch, because he's up in the attic. And he's like, no, not, not too much. We still have a long way to go. And he like wraps up part of his lunch like he's on a quest. Like he is invested. And I just, I love that scene. That 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 really sells me on this actor, this kid. Like he is in that book. And, and of course there's the next one where, you know, it looks like the thunderstorm's coming and he's hiding under the blanket. I just, those moments for me, like really kind of take this to the next level. Yeah, I agree with all that that you guys are saying. Um, really can't add much more to that apart from the fact that the emoting that Bastion does in some of the quiet moments, you know, when Artex dies, you see him just genuinely just weeping. That moment you mentioned, Aaron, where he says, we still have a long way to go and fully invested in that. And then even when things start getting whack-a-mole, he's like, it's only a story. This can't be right. It's only a story. When he comes to that realization that this is, this is, what? In some ways, I feel like the, the book for him is therapeutic because there's that real quiet moment where he's, I guess the camera cuts to Sky and, and then it pans back and it's him looking out the window of the attic and he, he's realizing that the emperor, the empress needs a new name. Like that's the cure. And he said, man, I, I know the perfect name. And for a long time, guys, I was like, what, what, what's her name? Because when he yells it, I'm like, what did he say? Did he say? Yeah, totally. And then, and then you find out that it's Moonchild, which again, to Aaron, to your point, it's like, what Moonchild? Like, is that, was that his mom's name? That's, that's <laughs> kind of hippie-esque. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll accept that. But I kind of like the fact that we didn't know that I didn't know. Maybe I was just stupid and just couldn't hear it. But if you know that he's saying Moonchild, you can see it. But I like the idea of the, of the mystery of not being able to hear it and it being really ambiguous because we didn't know what her name was. We inferred, even as kids, we're like, oh, it's his mom. You know, he's grieving. And you, Aaron, you and I have talked about the fact, the power of names and what that means to, to kind of hint into that world and say, ah, this is, this is what would really start the whole thing over. It's, those are the big moments, but they're also special to me. And, but I think when you see him looking out with the intensity of like, I can do this, uh, when you see him succeed, uh, I think when we have just a success with some of the characters, with uh, when he, um, when Atreyu gets through the gate, we see, we see him, you know, hunker down, put the, put the blanket over his head and he's like excited to read some more. I mean, it's just like, I love seeing how he reacts to different parts of the story. I love that he throws the book when he realizes when he's, when, when Atreyu's at that second gate and he's like, Oh my gosh, it's me. And 
he just shakes his head. He's like, no. And he starts to walk away. But then he says, no, I need to finish this. Finish what you start. It's going to be hard to get through it. That theme is just continuously moving forward. And I think that's what makes the movie effective for me is that it, while it does pull punches cinem- cinematographically, that's not a word. I know it's not. But when it comes to thematic, thematic, yeah, cinematically, when it comes to that, it does pull some punches. Like it's not that heavy handed. But again, your audience is kids. I think it gets the point across pretty well so that you're able to really kind of understand, even as a kid, what's happening here and picking up on those small things. To expand that to a miniseries, I think you could get deeper into that. You could explore. I don't know that I'd want to explore more of the world of Fantasia. I like the idea of keeping it compact and not necessarily having to have a lot of backstory. The uh, One of the more memorable moments for me that I'm always going to enjoy is that first meeting of the rock biter with the the other companions. Uh, the dialogue between all three of them is really great. The rock biter is just my favorite. I just love him. I would always wa- walk around on the playground and see shiny rocks and I go, ah, beautiful limestone rocks. I would never eat them because I'm not that guy, but I would always just imagine, I bet the rock biter would love this playground because look at all these great shiny rocks that are probably on limestone, but whatever. But just these kinds of characters, again, going back to some of the, the, the dark crystal, we get to be introduced to these kind of inanimate objects that are coming to life through puppeteers. I've asked my son, hey, let's watch the Muppets, and he refuses to, and I need to ask him why, but I think it's because he just doesn't like the puppeteering. I love the puppets. I love puppeteering and the practical effects of seeing puppets come to life you know, in terms of Jim Henson's Creature Shop, but also these characters, despite the fact that the dialogue doesn't always line up, I think their their design is so much fun, and it's there's some of my favorite characters in 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 movies they're always going to be ones that that i uh that that i remember growing up um i'd love to always if i ever got a chance to bring them into some kind of short film i'd love to bring the rock biter in or those guys uh it's just there's just lots of fun so yeah i think as a whole the movie is fantastic but you guys brought up some great scenes and um this was good well that's going to do it for us on this edition of feeling film adam thank you so much for joining us this was a ton of fun Oh no! Thank you guys. It's uh, I love I love your podcast, and I I was just catching up on some of your episodes, and uh, you guys always deliver. So thank you for for what you do, and thanks for having me on. Yeah. Well, where can people find you on social media if they want to connect with you about this or or anything else? Sure. Yeah, I, I'm only on Twitter. I'm at Adam Rackoff on Twitter, and yeah, I try to follow and respond to anybody that messages me. So feel free to do so. And uh, yeah, I would love to discuss more. Uh, there's so many fascinating things I learned in preparation for this for this episode about this film and how it was made. It's just, it, I, I love digging into that stuff. There's some great, a lot of what I learned is on the Blu-ray. So if you can get your hands on a copy of the Blu-ray, there's some great making of featurettes. Some of them are, are in German with subtitle, the featurettes. I mean, like there's an hour long doc- documentary that's all in German on the making of the film. So you will have to read <laughs> the Thanks. English subtitles. Yeah. Sorry about that patch. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, just, there's one like really great quick thing that I had no idea that scene when after Atreyu kills Gamork, the, Gamork. Yeah. And you know, the, the nothing is just blowing him and he's like literally hanging sideways off the tree. That 
like, how would you do that? Right. You're like, well, probably, you know, they probably had a big fan blowing them. No, they literally had an entire set on like on hydraulics and turned it vertically. And the kid was hanging like from the, the, with a fan blowing on him, hanging upside down with like shit blowing down on him. Yeah. It was just like, they don't do that today. Like they don't, they're like, Oh, well, we'll do that in post. We'll make him look like he's, he's being blown away in post. Yeah, it's just you, you don't realize, I think, how hard it was to achieve some of the things that they were doing back in not just this film, but in this period of uh, movie making. It was just a, a, such a challenge to figure out and find solutions to all of these sort of creative problems that they, that they wanted to put on film. There should be a documentary or some film series based off of that kind of story. Just the idea. Yeah. Just like, you know, this. <laughs> the history of film without a union, that kind of thing, where you <laughs> no rules, just right, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, this will do it for this episode. Uh, stick around for next week's episode. Aaron and I are excited to talk about this one. Dear Evan Hansen's coming to the theaters. It's coming somewhere, hopefully, <laughs> where you can see it. We're going to see it. We're hopefully going to love it. It's a five-star movie right now. Like, it's only going to deviate, hopefully yeah. by not much. I was so, going to say <laughs> We should just go ahead and put this in the trophy room until we see it, and then we'll have to see if it deviates a little bit. But <laughs> it's just, just being honest. So look forward to that next week. And you know, in the meantime, keep listening and keep conversating. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.